I have uh, introduced you before, and actually Steve quoted him during Sunday school this morning. Um, I've introduced you to the man that they just simply call the doctor. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a pastor of Westminster Chapel in London for 30 years in the mid-1900s, from the, uh, I think, the late 30s in through into the 70s. He was one of the most well-known and well-respected preachers in his day, and he was also a medical doctor. And recently, I've been working through a series of lectures that he gave at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and he gave them in the late 60s, and they were then compiled and published under the title uh, Preaching and Preachers. And in these lectures, he refers to the, to the rapid spread of the gospel in the early church as the church is scattered due to persecution throughout the book of Acts. And he specifically mentions Acts chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, and he, and he says from the King James Version of the Bible, which reads like this, Acts 8, 4, and 5, and the King James says, Therefore they that were scattered abroad and went everywhere, went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Lloyd-Jones said this of this passage. He said, in both cases you have the word preached. But in the original, the same word is not used in the, in the two verses. And this is a vital distinction. He says, what the people who went everywhere did was, as some have suggested it might be translated, was gossip the word, to talk about it in conversation. Philip, on the other hand, did something different. He was heralding the gospel. In other words, Philip was standing up like a a town crier and saying, thus saith the Lord. A little bit later, toward the end of that same lecture, Lloyd-Jones makes this Slightly controversial statement, especially at a seminary. He says, what about preaching as such? The act of preaching of which I have spoken. There's only one thing to say about this. It cannot be taught. That's impossible. Preachers are born, not made. This is an absolute. You will never teach a man to be a preacher if he's not already one. All your books, such as the ABCs of preaching or preaching made easy, should be thrown into the fire as soon as possible. But if a man is a born preacher, you can help him a little, but not much. He can perhaps be improved a little here and there. Well, I agree with that last statement at least, and I'm thankful for that. I should point out as a side note, I've been working on a hermeneutics class um, to help improve my preaching. I've been doing much reading over these last several weeks in order to help improve my preaching. But the doctor here does have a point. Because if you look at the landscape of preaching in the world today, you're going to find pastors and and, and preachers who constantly chase after the latest fads and trends, who look to the world for advice and guidance and learning and knowledge. Let me give you an example of one of the most uh, prominent influencers of these types of pastors. His website says this. He says to pastors mostly who are following this guy, you have the potential to transform your world. But the key to unlocking that potential lies in your growth. You see, a better you is an unstoppable change agent. A transformed you creates a transformed world. 
I'm all about transformation. That's why my team and I are committed to providing you the content and resources you need to become your better self. We are all in on helping you make the right changes that change everything. He says, my name is John, and I'm your friend. I want you to fulfill your potential. I want to help you change the world. And forgive my crassness, but pastors are buying that crap up. So in contrast with that, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is where we're going to be. We're just picking it up where we left off um, a few weeks ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 says this. Paul says to the Corinthian church, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We should stop and pray again. Father, it's my prayer that the faith of the saints here would rest in the power of God. It's my prayer that I would decrease and Christ would increase, even as we hear your word this morning, that you would be clear as you speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would remind you, kind of a little bit of a summary over these, the first chapter as we looked at it, I don't know, a couple months ago now. Paul has written this letter in order to... Uh, to, the, to the church at the city of Corinth in order to correct them of some of their, some of their wrong thinking and, and actions. He rebukes their sinful behavior in some cases, and he further instructs them, really in what we could say the proper life in the Christian church, how Christians ought to live together and worship together. He's written this letter as an appeal to Christian unity. They were a divided congregation in in many ways, and and in the ways in which they did stand united, it's sometimes united in the wrong things. We're going to see that as this plays out, especially in chapter 5. But as Paul writes this appeal to unity, he's clear to point out that he's not talking about unity simply for the sake of unity. He's decidedly not saying we should just either go along to get along or agree to disagree. He's reminding them of the truth upon which their faith is founded and on which they stand. He is calling them to unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is this good news that, just look up at chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. He writes that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And even as he calls them to this unity, look at that next verse, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, 
and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And that verse really becomes the, the theme of this entire letter, the theme of all of 1 Corinthians, really all of 1 and 2 Corinthians. Even when he gets into the difficult stuff, even when he starts talking with them about church discipline, even when he starts talking to them about the, the lawsuits that they have among themselves, people in the church suing each other, even when he starts talking about the marriage issues that they face and when he addresses the concept of spiritual gifts, Paul, the Apostle Paul calls for them to be of the same mind and the same judgment. And as he does, he reminds them that, that as Christians, they have a radically different perspective than the world. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To the world, the message of the cross of Jesus Christ is a foolish stumbling block. One of the, this may be a little bit of a side, I'm full of side notes today, so just bear with me. One of the weirdest things that I've seen developed over the last year or so is the world trying to chide Christians over the biblical concept of loving our neighbors. Have you noticed this? The world trying to chide us. The world's trying to define for us what it looks like. But the world has no idea what genuine love for neighbors really is. See, the, to the world, the, the message of love your neighbor, that's the message of Jesus. That's the full and complete message of Jesus, they would say. And in their view, as followers of the teachings of Jesus, we should therefore do whatever it is that they are telling us to define, uh, that they define loving your neighbor looks like. But let me show you what love really is. It's very simple. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You grapple with that, then we can talk about the other thing. But the problem is, to the world, the message of the cross of Jesus Christ, the message of, that was Romans 5.8, the message of Romans 5.8 is a foolish stumbling block. But to Christians, the cross, the atonement, the payment for sin that Christ paid with his own flesh is the power and wisdom of God. And as a result, he has given us something to boast about. Look at the end of chapter 1, verse 30. And because of him, you, are, you who are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so this morning, as we come finally now to chapter 2, we see that Paul is emphasizing the supremacy of God's wisdom over the world, over worldly wisdom. By not just looking at the faith of the Corinthian Christians, he's done that in the previous section, but even now pointing out his own preaching. Specifically, when he had first come to them, when he first went to them on his missionary journey, when they were first saved and the Corinthian church was first established. But before we move into chapter 2 too far, and I know we've already spent a little bit of time reviewing, we have to remember that God's Ordinary means of delivering the message, his message, or, or the word of the cross, is through preaching. 
Let me remind you of chapter 1, verse 21, when he said this, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. If you have one of the newer translations of the Bible, there's probably a footnote after that phrase, what we preach. Because it actually literally says, preaching. It means preaching what we preach. Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not dramas, not puppet shows, not movies, not pop songs, not PowerPoint presentations, not, not friendship evangelism. Preaching, heralding, proclaiming the good news of Christ crucified. Can he use those other things? Sure. God, <laughs> the Spirit works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform, right? But the primary means of his message being spread through the world is through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, persuasive oratory, persuasive speeches, has been a common method of people getting their, getting their message across from ancient days, even up to the present day, right? Why do you think politicians make speeches? They're trying to get their point across. Whether it's current politicians, even in our own nation, or political leaders from the past, right? Think of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, Washington's Farewell Address, or Ronald Reagan saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I'm sure you've seen images of bad guys, too. People like Hitler giving passionate speeches in Nazi Germany to rile up the people. Nikita Khrushchev banging his fist, maybe even a shoe, on the podium at the U.N., But gospel preaching is different than that. I really hope that you understand this. Because political speeches, while they may be powerful, and there are some that we would agree with, even some wholeheartedly that we would agree with, they're they're simply still worldly wisdom. And Paul is saying, I didn't come to you like that. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, through the foolishness of preaching what we preach to save those who believe. So consider with me here the folly, the foolishness, the nothingness of Paul's preaching. And so notice firstly here as we get into chapter 2, what he says about his manner of preaching. His manner of preaching in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He's going to pick up on the idea of his preaching, the manner of his preaching again in verse 3, and we'll get to that in a minute. But notice how he preached, or really how he did not preach, as it were. Paul is saying, first of all, that he did not follow the pattern of this world. That's what he's saying here. He did not come to them with lofty speech. Lofty means excellent or exceeding greatness. Today we would probably think of someone who gives a lofty or an exceedingly great speech. We might think of Winston Churchill giving those speeches that really helped save England from the Nazis during World War II. Mobilize a nation, and really not just one nation, but all of the allies against the threat that they faced. But Paul uses an interesting word for speech here. In the Greek, it's actually, it's actually tied to the Greek word logos, which is, if you remember, most famous from John chapter 1, 
verses 1 to 3, which says this, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word, the Logos, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Paul is saying to them, I didn't come to you with excellent word preaching, as the world calls excellent. And in saying this, Paul, what he's actually doing is setting himself up against those those traveling Greek philosophers who knew how important it was to, to make a good first impression. Who would come into town and bring a sense of of style and flair and superiority in order to grab attention and convince their hearers. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he, he writes this. He says, He did not affect to appear a fine orator or a deep philosopher, nor did he insinuate himself into the minds by a flourish of words or a pompous show of deep reason and extraordinary science and skill. Now, just to be clear, Paul is not saying that he was a lousy preacher that he was a poor preacher, that he was bad at what he did. He's comparing himself to the worldly methods and the wisdom of the world. He's comparing himself to to the current trends of persuasion. He did not come to Corinth with lofty speech. One commentary I was working in said he did not come with highfalutin speech which was the first time I'd ever seen the word highfalutin in a theological book before. But not only did he not come with that highfalutin speech, he also did not come to them with wisdom or deep philosophical knowledge. He did not approach them in a manner that said that that he had reached some sort of special step of enlightenment that none of them had reached. The wisdom that he's referring to is obviously worldly wisdom. He's been talking about that throughout chapter 1, and we've been over all of that. It's the type of wisdom that actually is, is intended to draw the minds of people away from divine truth, away from the truth of the Scriptures. Worldly wisdom. So, for example, think of much of our modern-day college teaching that is intended to draw students away from biblical truth. Whether it is creationism, or the existence of God, or right and wrong, or gender, or whatever. Designed to draw people away from biblical truth. Or think of celebrities, Christian celebrities, who used to claim Christ, but now are actively teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Paul did not come to them following the pattern of the world. So let's put this together and draw just a little bit of application. So many preachers today, and I I realize I'm preaching to the choir, um, so to speak, but so many preachers today try to, as Matthew Henry had said there, insinuate themselves or insinuate their brands into the minds of their audience. They're constantly chasing after the latest fad church at the movies, or they're modeling their sermons after TED Talks, and they work really hard at incorporating social debates into their messages in order to appear enlightened or wise or woke. And In doing this, they address things that can be and sometimes should be addressed biblically, but they do so with worldly wisdom. 
Things like racial tensions that we've seen over the last couple of years on our news every day. Poverty, abuse, or whatever the cause of the day is. And what they inevitably do is tie those things as inseparable from the testimony of God, a phrase that he uses there in verse 1. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And eventually this only leads to a denial of the atonement. It always does. I will admit to you that in a, in a former ministry years ago, I tried some of those things. I got caught up in trying to build a name for myself and chasing the latest fads. And I can tell you that it is exhausting. Chasing coolness or relevancy or whatever you want to call it, doing that in ministry is exhausting. I hope you never... I hope you never think I'm cool. So I repented of those things and I set my face to knowing nothing except Christ and Him crucified. I'm telling you to beware of preachers whose manner of preaching follows the patterns of this world. But Paul isn't just simply negative here. He's not simply saying, thank God I'm not like those philosophers. That's not what Paul is doing. He's also bringing attention to the content of his preaching. Look at the content of preaching. Verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ, Jesus Christ, and Him crucified. On the face of it, that's a pretty straightforward verse, right? It's, it's one of those verses that we sometimes, we sometimes quote that in isolation, out of the context. Although, it, I'll be honest, it's kind of hard to take out of context. It's a pretty straightforward statement. But the context is that it is set kind of in in contrast with the first verse. Notice that he begins with the word for. Paul hasn't come preaching like the world, making a big deal about himself. He comes proclaiming the one preached. He is solely focused on the crucified Christ. Paul's only purpose and desire in going to Corinth was to preach Christ. And not just Christ as a, as a good moral teacher. Not just Jesus, the, the perfect and ideal man. He's not gone to preach a Christ who tells us to behave. A Christ whose message is only love your neighbor. He preaches Christ crucified. He preaches Christ as dying for our sin. He preaches Christ's atonement. He preaches Christ as propitiation. Propitiation. Let's stop and look at that word for a minute. I mention it a lot, actually. And so I hope it's starting to make inroads into your mind, into your way of thinking, because it's one of the most important words or concepts in all of Christianity. Propitiation can be a word that's hard to understand, can be a word that's hard to pronounce. We don't use it anywhere except for when we're talking about Jesus. So it's really only just used in church or in theological discussions. But here's what it means. Propitiation is the removal of wrath by the offering of a sacrifice or gift. Propitiation is the removal of wrath by the offering of a sacrificial gift. Let me go to the Psalms to illustrate this kind of poetically. Just listen to Psalm 7, verses 11 to 13. 
So Psalm 711 says this, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Psalm 7 there in those verses present God as being ready to unleash his wrath on sinners. As standing with his sword out of its sheath and in his hand ready to strike. It presents him as an archer with his bow drawn and the arrows lit on fire. He's ready to destroy his enemies. He's ready to destroy unrepentant mankind. And the bad news is that Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it's actually even worse than that sounds, right? It's actually even worse than that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were at the end of that arrow. We were in those sights. Remember what Paul wrote to the Colossians. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. In other words, the wrath is coming. The wrath is here. The wrath of God is real. We really don't like to talk about it, but we face it. We face the wrath of God, except for Christ. Except for Christ. Remember, I said that propitiation is the removal of wrath by the offering of a sacrificial gift. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verses 6, starting in verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I want you to picture that verse for a moment. While we were still weak, picture God with his bow pulled back, with an arrow set and ready. With the, the, whatever it is that they wad up and light on fire and put on the end of an arrow, burning, and the weak ones are at the other end of that arrow. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul tells the Corinthian church 
that he had decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is why the, the elderly apostle John, getting into the end of his life, he writes to his dearly beloved church in 1 John chapter 2, these words. He says, my little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. He says people from all over the world, Jew and Gentile, he has opened up salvation to as many as would believe in him. And then he continues, he says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth of God is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is about salvation from the wrath of God. And for those who are safe, for those of us who, who have put our faith in him, listen to Jesus' own words. Listen to what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Take heart, my child, your sins are forgiven. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that means? It means that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It means that Jesus took that arrow. It means that Jesus faced the sword. It means that Jesus went to the cross. It means that Jesus died. This is propitiation. This is the testimony of God. This is the message and mystery of the cross. As the Apostle Peter would say in his letter, he, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. When Paul came preaching to the city of Corinth, he did not follow the pattern of this world in his manner of preaching. He simply told them of the testimony, of the mystery of God. His content was the gospel. And in order to stress the importance of this, as, as he's beginning to correct some of their wrong thinking, he once again points out here in verse 3 the manner of his preaching. So this is the manner of his preaching part 2. He's coming back to this. Look at verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Again, in these verses, he's stressing, this isn't about him. This isn't about me. He had to stress this before. Up in verse 17 of chapter 1, he said this. He said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I'm not trying to persuade you. The Holy Spirit is doing that. I'm just telling you what he says. I'm just telling you what he's done. Paul is reiterating again that the work of preaching for Christian ministers is not about the preacher. That's what the world thinks when they accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and, and turn away from listening to the truth and, and wander off into myths. 
And so instead of lofty speech, Paul is with them in weakness and fear and much trembling. He's not full of self-confidence. His confidence is in the Lord. His confidence is in the message that Jesus has called him to herald, to proclaim, to preach. In fact, Paul believed that the work that he was called to, he actually believes it was above his pay grade. Later, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he comes back to the gospel again, after correcting the church time and time and time again over several issues, he comes back to what he calls the, the topic that is of first importance. And he explains the gospel. And in verse 8, in explaining the risen Christ, he says this. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. My sin was so bad. I, I, shouldn't, be, I shouldn't be an apostle. I persecuted the church of God. But... By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul actively humbled himself that Christ might be exalted. He followed the the method of John the Baptist, who said he must increase, but I must decrease. And as he does this, he places himself really right alongside the Corinthians themselves. Do you remember what he had just said to them? Look up at verse 26 of chapter 1. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Paul is identifying with the church. Hey, I'm just... Just like you, I'm a sinner who's been saved by the grace of God. He's turning all eyes really off of ourselves and onto the glory of Christ. The early church father, John Chrysostom, he lived, I think, in the 300s AD. He wrote this. He said, I, for my part, on this account, admire Paul, because being in fear... But not simply in fear, but even in trembling at his perils, he so ran as to ever keep his crown. Because he didn't want people to look at him, but at his Christ. And look at the result of his preaching. The result of his preaching, pick it up there in the middle of verse 4. He says, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Despite Paul's descriptions of the, of the manner and style of his preaching, namely his own weaknesses that he talks about, his preaching has in fact demonstrated the work of the Holy Spirit and the presence of genuine power in the lives of the hearers. This is the power to change lives. This is the power to bring dead people, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, to new life in Christ. Listen to how he puts this as he talks about the power of the gospel when he was writing to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, he says this, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, that is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel, Christ crucified, propitiation, the atonement for sin is the power of God for salvation. And so if your life has been changed, it's because the Spirit of God has made you alive through the hearing of the preached gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is where your faith rests, not in a preacher, but in the power of God. We could say it this way, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so as we come to the table this morning, as we approach and eat of the bread and drink of the cup, if you have been born again by the Holy Spirit, if you have repented of your sin and are trusting in Christ alone for salvation, then taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Proclaim with all the saints that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Proclaim that it is by his wounds we have been healed. And so if you are trusting in Christ for salvation, take heart, my child. Your sins are forgiven. If you have not trusted in Christ alone for salvation, then I would say this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Repent and believe. Don't eat of the bread or drink of the cup because the scripture says that you will, in so doing, you will eat and drink judgment on yourself. Rather, believe that Jesus died for your sin in order to make you alive in him.